was crystallized based on the successes of some of our early microfinance investing and then one extraordinary blow up that we had in a portfolio that we invested in a profitable company which blew up in our faces 18 months later and so we looked at the mistakes that we made out there and then conceptualized what was working and what was not working and why we had made the mistake so it's very simple the elevator method we spend an incredible amount of time in the field um and this is not market research this is immersion of a kind so it's not even a go on a field visit have a couple of conversations and come back we're really trying to understand the wallet and the aspirations of the end customer the underserved hi welcome to forbes india's the startup fridays weekly conversations with accomplished entrepreneurs we see investors and other folks who are doing significant work in india's startup ecosystem you can find a new episode every friday evening You can also find us live on Instagram every Friday morning. I'm Hari Arakli and my guest today is Sandeep Farias, founder and managing partner at Elevar Equity, an early stage VC firm that backs entrepreneurs who are solving large problems for the low and middle income communities in India and Latin America. In this episode, Sandeep talks about the Elevar method for identifying ideas that could become enduring businesses with significant societal impact. Sandeep started with an integrated honors degree in law and arts from the prestigious National Law School India University in 1996 and then worked for several years in two of India's biggest corporate law firms Amarchand Mangaldas and Nishit Desai Associates. His work after the Gujarat earthquake in 2000 on behalf of American India Foundation helped Nishit Desai Associates win the Asian Law Firm of the Year award under the pro bono category by the International Financial Law Review. He was also part of the team that worked on Wipro's listing on the New York Stock Exchange. Before Elevar, Sandeep started the Indian operations of the well-known development sector-focused financial services firm Unitas and through his work there became something of an authority on microfinance. Later he was chief innovation officer at Unitas. He co-founded Elevar Equity in 2008. fantastic to have you with us this morning sandeep i'm really looking forward to this conversation welcome sir thank you very much hari and uh, an absolute pleasure to be here i must say you've done your research you completely got my background so <laughs> thank you all right <laughs> so anyway let's get into that background a little bit more i know it's been a, a long 25 plus year career uh, just give us a kind of a snapshot you know of the journey that brought you to elevar before elevar and then let's get into how you started elevar and all that sure um so like when i meet entrepreneurs i always ask them for their life story so i will give you a short version of the life story uh i often say i have three parents so uh, father mother and state bank of india because i grew up in sbi compounds so that's an important aspect of my life but uh, i've seen the north i've seen the south i've seen rural small town india cities large cities uh my mother was in education my dad was in banking lots of educational institutions some fancy some not so fancy uh i went to the national law school was the fourth batch at that time the university uh used to say they're producing social engineers uh not lawyers necessarily uh i practiced in corporate commercial law i've taught i worked in house as a lawyer like you mentioned at wipro uh represented clients like singapore telecom and google but i think in all of this it all led me to discovering an obscure article in a journal which talked about a for profit approach to development and this was in the early 2000s actually 
which then started off the journey to say, how do I think about the world a little differently, tapping into perhaps what was happening through my entire childhood and my formative years. Uh, but I was just fascinated by the power of distribution and what one could achieve. One other transformative experience, which I think is worth pointing out, was the Bhuj earthquake um, and the time spent on the ground after that, uh, just realizing that a lot more needed to be done. So that perhaps gives you enough of a snapshot of how my life went and then leading into what is today called impact investing. All right. So now tell us about uh, Elivar itself. Uh, what's it all about? Uh, why, when, and how did you all start it? Uh, and maybe we can also get into how it's evolving now. Sure. Um, so we've been at this for 15 years, though Elivar formally was uh, set up in 2008. Um, you know, in the early days, uh, there was a simple idea where we said we wanted to demonstrate that a commercial model could drive change uh, on the ground. Uh, everybody usually thinks about change as being driven by government or by philanthropy, but we said that there is a way to do it through a commercial model. And I think in some respects, we were trying to prove that hypothesis. Uh, the other dimension that I think is very important, which was kind of critical to the setting up of Elevar, was if you look at the microfinance space, uh, it existed for some 30 odd years in the nonprofit space. And then in a country like India, uh, combination of regulation, maybe some of us were working in the early days, there were debt providers, all of that came together. Uh, and those were very, very interesting early years. Uh, microfinance went from non-profit to mainstream banking, whether universal bank or small finance banks in a decade in India, which I think today something that is available very easily across the country to have made that kind of journey was very fascinating. So for Elevar and you know, the founding of Bellevue was the question was a simple question of whether we could do that in other essential services. So we'd solved maybe for microfinance and that journey had already started, but could we do it in other kinds of essential services, but cut down the experimentation time, the innovation time where you don't need 30 years in the nonprofit world. Can we do it using capital within the context of a business model itself? Um, and that's how Elevar started and the Elevar method of investing evolved over time as we learned from our mistakes. And we made mistakes. Uh, so that's important to call out. Yeah. So just briefly, I mean, for the curious uh, amongst the watchers and viewers and listeners, uh, tell us about uh, the name Elevar. I mean, I tried to look it up and you know, I came up with some definitions like to elevate and promote and encourage and so on. Uh, what were you, what was your thinking? And also tell us about uh, the Latin American connection briefly, since you invest in Latin America as well. No, that, that, that's really my, this was the question where I was like, you've really done your research because forget about my background, but even to go into the root of the word Elevar, you absolutely hit the nail on the head. See, we were thinking emerging markets, low income, underserved communities across the world. We were not just thinking India, if you go back to the early years. Uh, so you're thinking globally in that sense, but we were also very clear that we had to act locally. And so when we were thinking about connecting capital markets to low income communities, we wanted something that spoke to what we did. Uh, so it's actually one of my co-founders, Joanna, she's Mexican in origin, who said this may be an interesting name. Uh, and it resonated immediately. Uh, it's about elevating entrepreneurship, but not just the entrepreneurs we back, but it's also about elevating entrepreneurship that is of the micro kind. It's the customer and their entrepreneurship, their resilience, the vibrancy of those kinds of communities and how they make their ends meet, build their lives, etc. So it was that entire combination 
uh, that the word LOR uh, really came about uh, in terms of background. Now, your second part of that question was Latin America. We were, since we were thinking globally and emerging markets was a focus. Uh, if you go back to the origins of the of the founding team and particularly the investing partners of the founding uh, team, so Joanna came from the Latin American context, uh, and so we felt the Alvar method of investing could apply in these different markets. Uh, but I'll be honest, we can't do it in any emerging market. The premise of affordable products and services and massive scale, which can lead to the levels of profitability and company performance. Uh, needs a certain density of population. So there are some markets in Latin America, Mexico being a very good, uh, obvious example where that can happen and India being an extraordinary example where that can happen. So it comes from the origins of the founders, but also I think importantly, the kind of markets that we wanted to invest in. Uh, so you put those things together, triangulated, perhaps you landed up with the Latin American bench. Mm. Uh, tell us about uh couple of your most interesting earliest investments and also maybe uh, talk about uh, what that taught you in terms of the challenges of uh, having the mandate of an impact fund, uh, but also backing for-profit uh, businesses. Sure, sure. Uh, interesting question. So when we started, I think most impact investors, when they started, if you go back into the kind of 2000s, if you will, um, we were a very small cohort of people at that point of time. It all started with microfinance. Uh, for us uh, specifically, uh, we were looking at what worked from an investing standpoint and from a business building standpoint. And that's where the origins of the Elwar method of investing, and we can talk about that also in a little bit, um, came across in the idea of customer-centric businesses, replicable businesses, consistency of a business model. And today we found that that method cuts across education, small business services, agri-supply chain, healthcare opportunities, etc. You go back to the ecosystem at that point of time, actually, perhaps it's not even fair to call it an ecosystem. To get a high-quality auditor for a company working at that point of time, the network of service providers uh, didn't exist. So you had to leverage the notion that you were an international brand working with an organization to be able to attract Talent was extremely difficult to bring on board and investment capital beyond us was also extremely difficult. There was a certain skepticism about the end customer as being low income and therefore incapable of paying, incapable of building their lives, which, but our experience was exactly the opposite. Curiously, the only set of people who seemed to understand it was some regulators. And I think that's a very interesting dynamic. Um, now, what's happened today, uh, our biggest challenge, because I'll bring it back to today, uh, the talent issue and the capital issue remains. I think the proof of the business model remains, but I think capital and talent tends to look for what is, uh, you know, uh, part of the, you know, a broader ecosystem, which is written in the press, which is, you know, uh, that kind of uh, dimension, which I think is very important. So uh, even though the model is well established, and there are substantial proof points. Uh, we have the data and we have the track record. It's sometimes challenging to attract capital into our companies and getting the right talent. But I think it's gotten a lot better. What have we done? We've invested in, we've raised multiple funds. You're right, we've invested a few hundreds of millions of dollars. Our companies, the co-investor capital is north of 2 billion into these companies. So an equity leverage of like eight to 10 times. Uh, We've done 45 odd companies. We've done something like 18 or 19 full or partial exits. 
That 45 million households that we've reached is a very important number that we track. And that number will only go up on this cohort of the 45 companies because many of them are relatively young. So all meaningful numbers. Uh, and so this is not something on the side anymore. This is the future of mainstream uh, that we have to solve for that mass market, if you will. If I use, you know, regular investing language to say this is the mass market opportunity. For us, we were coming, of course, from a different lens and a different purpose and a different intentionality. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've mentioned the Eleva method uh, a couple of times. Uh, tell us what that's about and give us a sense of, you know, how that framework has kind of crystallized over the years as you learned more about, you know, your uh, entrepreneurs and their markets. Sure. So that, you know, I, I like the word crystallized that you use because it's very important to call that out. It was crystallized based on the successes of some of our early microfinance investing and then one extraordinary blow up that we had in a portfolio that we invested in a profitable company which blew up in our faces 18 months later. And so we looked at the mistakes that we made out there and then conceptualized what was working and what was not working and why we had made the mistake. So it's very simple, the Elevar method. We spend an incredible amount of time in the field. Um, and this is not market research. This is immersion of a kind. So it's not even a go on a field visit, have a couple of conversations and come back. We're really trying to understand the wallet and the aspirations of the end customer, the underserved. Uh, now, once we understand that, we're really tracking that wallet, uh, revenue opportunities, expenditure patterns. We're kind of looking at what their priorities are. And then we ask ourselves the question, is there a business model that's capable of addressing that affordably? Because that's very important. Impact investing has to be premised on the idea of affordability. It cannot be on a maximization of margin strategy. So that's the second component of what we look at is the business model. Capability affordably is a very, very important dimension. Now, assuming we check the box on that front, then there are two very, very important dimensions of the Alavar method. We have to address the issue of scale because scale is impact, impact is scale. There's no point solving for 10,000 people. We have to solve uh, for millions of people. And so then we kind of asked ourselves the question, who are the kind of entrepreneurs we want to back? And we decided we needed entrepreneurs because of the complexity of the problems who had a certain life experience. Uh, and so the Elvar method, therefore, is about time with the customer, the business model, scale and the right kind of entrepreneurs that we want to invest and putting them all together in the context of how we invest is is a very, very disciplined, structured approach. I think the one thing I'll point out is even though we invest early, we I think in something like 40 percent of our companies, we wrote a startup check. And in something like 85% of our companies, we were the first institutional capital. So we like to go in early. Uh, in India, our loss ratio of capital at that stage is actually single digit. It's 6% if I remember my numbers right. So we're not a classic VC in that sense. We don't have this 2 in 10 or 1 in 10 kind of success model. We're really going in uh, and figuring out a business model that works, that is important to the customer. And then we're scaling it by backing the right entrepreneur. So it's been a lot of fun, but it's incredibly hard work also. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell, t- tell us a bit more about uh, the kind of sectors that you focus on today and maybe within that specific segments and maybe give us a f- few examples of uh, companies that you've invested more recently in. Sure. So, um, like I said, we started with microfinance, then we moved into broader financial services small business lending, we went into affordable housing finance, et cetera, et cetera, because we were playing to strengths. Um, and I think that financial services trend, we've continued and it's still an important area that we invest in. 
uh, we've evolved our thinking on how, what kind of business models we want to back. But we then started to apply the LOR method beyond that. So we've looked at the healthcare space a little bit, not that very much. It's increasingly becoming more important. We've looked at the education space and employability space. We've looked at agri supply chains. We've looked at the broad space of MSME business services. So these are the themes that we look to back. And what's the common thread among all of them uh, is they're all essential in nature. They're all focused on the underserved. Uh, they're all extremely important to the end customer. So the essential service dimension where when we invest, we're not going out to seek product to determine whether there is product market fit. We know there is product market fit. The question we're really trying to address is can a business model deliver and can it scale? Uh, so very often when early stage investors, you're actually backing a company to prove its product market fit. We're not doing that. So the sectors now are all kinds of essential services. And as the customer needs evolve and get more and more sophisticated, uh, because let's say more and more fundamental issues, distribution does get created. We'll evolve based on that uh, construct as far as the end customer is concerned. So, yeah, I can take you through some companies if that's of interest, because sometimes this yeah. is all very conceptual, but it needs to be applied in, yeah. in very, very concrete ways. So we have yeah. a company, we have a company called Cloud Physician, which we realize that in rural areas, critical and emergency care is a very, very important area because otherwise transportation to an urban hospital or something like that is extremely constant. So tele ICU model in remote areas, they can revolutionize emergency and critical care once they build scale and if they're successful. We've invested in a company called Lead School, which is fundamentally changing the way children access in the affordable school market quality education. Uh, for something like, you know, 200 bucks a month, you're actually able to drive grade level outcomes quite significantly up inside the affordable school market. We've backed a company uh, called Samunati, which is changing the way smallholder farmers actually through farmer producer organizations and agri enterprises are able to access finance and market market linkages. So fundamentally, that's a very, very important uh, approach that we're taking. Uh, we backed a company called Servagram, which is a household centric company. So starting with capital, but then moving into a range of other kinds of products and services that are relevant to rural households. So you think of the household in its entirety in the way you understand that uh, proposition and then you think about solutions that work for that household so multiple companies each of them has the potential to transform something very fundamental on the ground uh, and that's core to how we we think on an overall basis we've done a couple of embedded finance companies called one's called stride the other one's called nero but the approach out there is to say how do you build customer centricity uh, do it in a thoughtful manner do it in a way which can scale in a in a way which is profitable so that you're there uh, becoming an enduring company for the future. One point I'll quickly make, and maybe I'm rambling and I apologize for that. Uh, for us, companies need to be enduring. You know, we can't have a company that's focused on the impact segment, which disappears in three years or four years. It's very important to try to solve for them being enduring because once they become important to the end customer, they need to continue to exist. That's very, very important. And so that's the reason we've not really backed high loss funded companies with large amounts of equity capital, etc. In fact, if there's a shortage of equity capital that's coming in for growth of these companies, these companies within a couple of quarters can actually pivot and become profitable and actually move forward because they have to be enduring companies for the end customers. We can't disrupt traditional parameters 
of access of those essential services for customers by offering a different construct. And then because capital is a constraint, these companies disappear or because of some other macro condition, these companies disappear. So we have to think a lot more thoughtfully. And that's been very important to our journey. Mm-hmm. Okay, allow me to uh, ask a slightly longish uh, question because I want to kind of call out some of the things that I learned uh, by you know listening to your other interviews and uh, reading a little bit on your website. Uh, over the years, you actually uh, made the effort to you know kind of codify your learnings in some framework frameworks. Uh, I came across uh, this um, what is that uh, uh, low ARPU, uh, high wallet share, and then uh, the customer business value. And I think somewhere along the line, you also uh, talked about uh, uh, looking at entrepreneurs and companies that can go from one product or service to a platform or even an ecosystem kind of thing and and not necessarily in the tech sense but uh, an ecosystem that makes sense for the low income low middle income uh, communities uh, so so the question is as follows how do you i mean you've already made some of these points just to get get into that a little bit deeper how do you decide on an investment and uh, also kind of walk us through how that process of deciding on investment has evolved over the last 15 years for all the things that you have learned. And maybe uh, you can take one example also and talk about all of these points. So uh, since you raised some of these frameworks and the articulation of these frameworks, I'll just make an interesting point. Uh, as as during the pandemic, uh, uh, two of my partners based in India, uh, Jotsna and Vipul and I, the moment the government allowed people to start returning to office, and I think at that time they said 25%, the three of us landed up getting back to office. And since there was nobody else in office and everybody else was working from home, we sat in the reception area and we said, this is a good opportunity to think about what we've done, why it has worked and why it's not worked. So kind of like sometimes strategy is about looking backwards and conceptualizing what you've done as opposed to, you know, navel gazing into the future. So that was an exercise. And we realized that uh, actually what we'd done was this low ARPU, high wallet share because the essential services nature meant a high wallet share of investing. It was important to the customer, but because it was the affordability of margins, it was a low ARPU. So we just put down and put it out there saying these are frameworks. But I think your question about how do we decide on an investment, right? Um, I'll be very honest, we're, we're early stage investors, right? So ultimately beyond the analysis, Beyond everything else, uh, it's coming down to the people we're backing and the alignment we can build with them. Now, let me break that down. The people we're backing is, uh, can we work with them? Uh, do, do we have a similar view of the world in terms of the problem statement and the solutions? And that leads me into the alignment factor. Uh, very often we may meet an incredible entrepreneur with an incredible business model, but maybe because of our own work in the field, we have a different view of how to solve for that problem. So we'll wish them all the success in the world and be a friend, but we won't be an equity partner. For us, we're looking at where there's alignment. That alignment factor is very, very important. And it's a it's a friendship alignment. It's a business model alignment. It's a distribution alignment. It's how we think about the world alignment. We can only do this, Hari, if we are doing two to three investments a year. If we were the classical VC doing 10 investments or 20 investments a year, I don't think we can build that kind of alignment. It would be exhausting to be able to do that. So it's about the person person ultimately and the kind of alignment we can build with them. So why did we back many of those companies we mentioned is because we had alignment of that purpose, of the intentionality of the model. 
Um, and sometimes it's so clear that the alignment can exist that even the first email when it comes saying, this is my deck, this is what I'm doing, you can read it and you can get a sense that there can be alignment. Uh, it happened with Lead School, for example. I mean, just when the email arrived, we kind of like knew that this was likely to become an investment. Uh, but when we met them, then it became very obvious we were backing them. Uh, Samunati, the moment uh, the entrepreneurs told us, so that was Anil in the lead case, it was Sumit and Smita, Anil in the context of Samunati, the moment he said agri-finance is where he wanted to start but then go into a solutioning mode, it became very important. And that brings me very quickly to the idea of a solution. Uh, it was in the conversation with one of our entrepreneurs himself who kind of said, you guys don't realize you think about it in two flywheels, so to speak. You're thinking about customer success and business success. And you're trying to find models which actually integrate the two, where the business will succeed when the customer succeeds. Um, and that's when we conceptualized this twin flywheel effect. And we said, the way you build distribution is very, very customer centric and the usage of frameworks. So when we look at companies at the early stage, we're trying to assess what it will take to succeed. How do we build the alignment with the entrepreneur and then go forward on that basis? Uh, so yeah, slightly long answer, but the question was a very loaded question. So. Fair, fair enough. And yeah, and just to continue this a little bit more, uh, you've talked about in this conversation as well about uh, not getting into very high levels of loss fundedness and so on. Uh, so what have you learned over the years uh, about what characterizes a successful venture with a strong social bottom line, uh, but also something that can uh, tap into a large market and be become profitable what are those i mean are there any things any fundamental things that characterize such ventures so uh, i i won't want to put out a framework and say this is something which characterizes all successful companies because i don't think i have that kind of uh, you know clarity i i can tell you what's worked within our portfolio and i think that's very important uh, because you also land up backing and maybe this bias of there, you land up backing entrepreneurs for a certain kind or taking a certain approach. Uh, this is again actually a framework that we evolved based on mistakes. Uh, we think of companies in three or four stages and there are many entrepreneurs who think of them in very similar ways. So the first stage is can you prove the distribution of the unit economics and we like business models that can do it within 12 to 18 months. Uh, so if an entrepreneur is disciplined and we are disciplined about that idea as the lead investor, if you will, uh, for two to five million dollars, you can actually prove that out if it's essential services focused. Then the question is, can you take another 18 months to build out the organization for scale, but not yet scale, but build out the organization for scale. And you typically can do that with about five to ten million dollars. What's amazing at this point of time is something between 10 to 15 million dollars. You've proved out a business model that has mass market appeal. And you've got the organizational strength for scale. So the companies that succeed actually are able to do this well within the timeframes that we're talking about. And then it's a function of how much capital and what's your ambition and your internal capability from a scale leading to impact standpoint. So that construct of how you build a company is very, very important and dear to how we think. Uh, and, you know, that's part of that early process of evaluating an investment building alignment but it's also the process by which we work with companies because the nature of your work with companies has to change and so our value proposition to the portfolio also is not standard it's not like we have these five tools and then we keep applying it we have to curate for their success so an entrepreneur may have a blind spot on debt he may not have the networks another entrepreneur may have the uh, debt networks what's the point in introducing them if they have the debt networks? so you have to customize and say 
I'm curating for your success. You have this gap. I will help you solve it. We may have the solution internally. We may not. Somebody else, we may have to bring on board to be able to do that. But you have to think about that discipline and focused execution uh, to build enduring companies. Uh, and that's very, very important in how we operate. Mm. Give us uh, one quick example, maybe from one of your earlier investments, because obviously this takes time to go from a single product or service to more like an ecosystem. Yeah. So, so. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples as the headline because I think it'll become very obvious. So if you take lead, for example, um, they, they started with solving for educational outcomes of children in a school. But along the way, they realized that the school also needs to succeed for the benefit of the children. So you start to solve for the school and that becomes an additional. So you're becoming much more solution oriented. You take Samunati, you're starting by saying, I will provide you the capital to a small farmer to be able to be produce whatever is needed from a agrarian economy standpoint. But then you realize that market linkages are extremely important to the farmer. So you have to think from the customer standpoint and then you say, okay, can I therefore evolve my product construct and not be product construct, but be solution oriented based on the need? And how do you build your business model and evolve on that? We have another very interesting company, uh, which is called Bike Bazaar, uh, which started with two-wheeler finance, both used two-wheelers because the certain economic segment could not afford brand new bikes. So it was used two-wheelers, but also new bikes. But I is now saying, wait a minute, I need to think about the entire ecosystem of what a bike owner needs because it's a key instrument in terms of livelihoods and mobility being important to livelihoods because it's a, it's a way people on bikes go to work. This is not about, you know, uh, entertainment or something like that. So you have to start thinking much, much broader. And so when you take that customer centric thought, and I gave you three examples, then you have to evolve your product construct. And so that evolution of the product construct based on the customer need within that domain is what we call solution orientation. And we've seen multiple companies actually build success on it. But I think your point is right. This takes time. You can't start with like the mindset of solution orientation needs to start from the beginning, but you can't start with the entirety of solution upfront because it's too complex. You have to be disciplined and focused and build it over time. Mm. And again, just to sort of uh, close out the, the learnings part of this conversation, you mentioned that one investment blew up. I'm sure a lot of people are curious about what happened. Maybe tell us about that briefly. Yeah, so uh, it was a it was a company called Comat. Uh, it's an investment we made in 2008. Uh, we were actually a Series C investor and we were not the lead investor of that round. Uh, but we went in. Uh, and 18 months later, it just blew up on our faces. So what were our learnings out there, right? The Comat story is a very complex story. So we'll keep it aside, you know, you know, that's a different issue. I'll tell you from our standpoint, because I think that's the important part of the question, right? So it had 800 what are now called common service centers. So that time they were called internet kiosks, etc., which were offering a range of government services, education services, financial services, etc., which existed in the state of Karnataka. And they were they were doing well. And they had mandates to go into other states. But what we, when they went into scale, we realized that 80% of the units were contributing, 20% of the revenue and vice versa. So fundamental unit economics perhaps didn't exist. But then they also ran out of cash because the financial crisis had come in, debt providers had pulled out. There were a whole range of additional complexities. Now, all of those complexities, maybe the company would have run into trouble irrespective. But our learning was fundamentally, that I mentioned those three stages of company development, really came out of 
when we understood what went wrong, we realized that you can't look at unit economics in a totality of units. You have to really understand at a unit level what is really happening and what is working. And is that capable of replication became the next level of the question that we needed to answer. So clearly in that case, they had combined unit economics at 800 units, but they didn't have the capability to replicate yet. That had not been mastered. And so it was that big learning which then informed the rest of our investing, including the conceptualization of be very disciplined for 12, 18 months, don't scale, few units, prove out your distribution economics, then build out the organization and then start to scale. Yeah. I still wish that company had succeeded. It was doing great work, but well, it is what it is. Mm. Okay, slightly different uh, question. Uh, you did say that you're not a VC firm in the conventional sense, uh, but still uh, you, you do have uh, your LPs and uh, you have the uh, mandate of returning a, a decent return to them. So how do you, in the, in the impact uh, sector, uh, what's the tension like between, uh, you know, allowing a, an entrepreneur uh, his or her vision and uh, your mandate of uh, returning a good multiple on their investments to your LPs? Sure. So, great question. Um, and I'll come back to the alignment question. The way we think about the alignment question is customer to company, company to founder, founder to us as investors, investors to LP. We need to think about that as, as a full continuum of alignment, which is very, very important. We've been fortunate, Hari, to be very honest, very fortunate that we've had aligned LPs who've been very supportive through the journey. Uh, it's been a mix of LPs. We started off much more individual oriented in our early days. Uh, it's much more institutional today as we built a track record. But ultimately, people who are investing in us want to see a certain view of the world implemented, so to speak. Um, so it's also fit well within our strategy for the simple reason that we don't uh, focus on raising, raising large amounts of capital because if I went out and raised a $500 million fund, I can't do the early stage investing that I'm very interested in helping these business models really emerge for the customer. So we've kept our fund sizes relatively small. Uh, obviously, we have pools of capital for Latin America and India, um, which are separate. But then ultimately, uh, what we've been able to do, and I'm very thankful and I think we're privileged, is that we've had aligned LPs uh, as far as that journey is concerned. So, but the question of tension is actually what you're talking about between the returns and the impact. Uh, you know, from my standpoint, uh, there are many funds within the impact ecosystem will say they prioritize the impact over returns. And there are many funds who will say we're finance first. The returns, if you push comes to shove, the returns are a little bit more important than the impact, right? For us, we're operating in the quadrant where we're hoping there's a strong correlation between the two, that if you can get high returns, you can get high impact and vice versa, because vice versa is very, very important. And so that means we're trying to play within that one quadrant very, very specifically if you put impact on the x-axis and you put returns on the y-axis. Now, what that means, again, is it comes back, we have to have a concentrated portfolio. We cannot be a broad-based portfolio. And from our pipeline standpoint, we can only find two to three investments realistically, which meet all our criteria, including the fact that there is a correlation between the impact and returns. Because we very often meet wonderful entrepreneurs, wonderful business models, where there is a trade-off between the two. Uh, and that's not an LOR investment typically. That's how we think at least. Now, of course, in time, something else may happen. No business model plays out exactly the way you predicted it. But at least our underwriting criteria, selection criteria takes that factor into consideration that we think if we drive customer centricity from an impact standpoint, we should do well. Uh, the company should do well commercially as a consequence because it's customer centric. 
Mm. Okay, let's uh, talk a bit more about your own personal journey. Uh, let's start with uh, what got you thinking about law school. I mean, I would imagine 30 odd years ago in my own class in school, I think uh, I had two batchmates who wanted to go to national law school and incidentally, both of them managed to get in uh, and everyone else was either medical school or, uh, or or preparing for IIT, JEE and I had no clue what I was going to do. Uh, what got you thinking about law school? So, uh, well, um I, I think an environment at home. Uh, my father actually did law, but never practiced because he joined State Bank of India. Um, I think an environment where you discussed a lot about issues around the world. Um, I was an active debater during school. I think that probably played a role. So I actively thought about law as a potential career. But the other alternative I was honestly considering was a career in mathematics. Uh, so I, my question was, if I get into the National Law School because there's an all-India entrance examination, it's certainly an option. Uh, but it wasn't as structured and well thought out. I mean, I was I was perfectly fine with the maths. In fact, I was thinking that's more likely. Um, so it's only when you got admission and keep in mind, this was the fourth batch. It wasn't as competitive as, as it is today. So there are no smarts associated with it. If I remember the numbers right, I think just short of 600 people wrote it in those days because that was the fourth batch. It, had, it was not that well established yet. Uh, but when I got in, I said, okay, they might as well do this. But mathematics was the other option that I was considering and the kind of mathematics where the answers can be expressed in multiple ways. But I think the core to both of these was I was very, very, I, I think I was the kind of person who was very open to the idea of multiple answers to the same question. I think laws about that. And I think the kind of maths I was interested in, that was also probably true of. Uh, so that was probably the core DNA that I was trying to explore from a career standpoint. It just so happened by chance that it became law. Uh, I wish it was more thought out. Hmm. Okay, and and this and the transition from uh, law to becoming a, an investor, and also specifically focusing on the development sector. How did that happen? I mean, I know I know at Nishadesa you did some work in the development areas, but what got you thinking about being a VC investor in the development sector? Yeah, so um, I, I think I talked right in the beginning about the various influences, right, in terms of my upbringing, etc. So the idea that I wanted to do something more meaningful and which had purpose probably emerged out of that. But the notion of becoming an investor was, that's a different choice because that's in the evolution. You kind of start working in a sector and then I decided to become an investor. So after the early years, after I left law and working with the microfinance space and helping some of the microfinance institutions think about scale, I worked with some of them even in terms of moving from nonprofit into regulated models and we got RBI approvals for that, etc. So there's a lot of work associated with that. Um, I was actually thinking of going entrepreneurial in an operating company style. So I was actually exploring that idea. And, but simultaneously, I also realized that within what has now become the impact space or the impact investing space, I'd reached an interesting point in that entire ecosystem where I could actually play a fairly interesting role to bring capital to a multiplicity of entrepreneurs. So that's when the idea of becoming an investor I don't think it was planned. It was just circumstances. And I just realized where I stood within the ecosystem that I think there can be a very powerful approach to actually transform things. 
Initially, even as an investor, I was like, oh, microfinance seems to be working. Let's try it in two more financial services models and then maybe I'm done. There was no long-term aspiration to say, you know, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. But then when that started to happen, then you start getting ambitious. Then you're like, let me try it in education and then let me try it in agriculture. And then it started to work more and more. And so now you're kind of like, you know, maybe the ambition needs to go 10x. We need to, we have so many people that we need to solve for. Let's, let's take up the ambition. So the next few years, hopefully we'll ramp up on the ambition considerably to be able to solve for essential services for underserved communities uh, at scale. Um, and that will be kind of the journey. So again, the investor choice, I, I think a lot of my choices in life have been circumstances guided me in a certain direction. I wish I, maybe I, you know, uh, I do think about a lot of things in life, but my career choices have not necessarily been the most well thought of. I think been very gut level intuitive reactions based on a set of circumstances that I've, I've made those choices. Mm. That said, uh, looking back, uh, what would you say are uh, some of the biggest uh, lessons? I mean, from a career development, personal development uh, point of view, I mean, you know, uh, I'll, hmm, you know, sort of allow me to qualify that in the following way. I mean, one of my most favorite uh, ideas uh, in life in general, as well as in, in career, is that people often, uh, uh, you know, overestimate what can be done in the short term and uh, underestimate what can be achieved in the long term. I mean, obviously not my idea. And something that uh, someone at Amazon told me some years back, they were trying to describe Amazon's approach to work. Uh, so that's just really stuck in my mind. So, so with that qualification, tell us about the you know biggest lessons from your career. Yeah, so I, I wish I had something as profound as that because that's a pretty profound statement actually. So I wish I had something like that. Um, I, I'll go with something much more people oriented. I think uh, I'm not a big organization person. I'm a small organization person. So with the exception of my Wipro stint, I've by and large worked in small organizations. Even the firms that I worked in were small when I worked with them. They're now very large. If you go back to my legal days. So for me, actually, the biggest lesson is work with close friends. And when you start working them, if they're not your friends, invest in them so that they become your friends. Uh, because I think there is a certain uh, honesty. There's a certain clarity when you work with people who can challenge you. And I think that's been a very important aspect of the choices that I've made in life. So the best teams that I've been part of also or the te best teams that I've run when I've run teams people were friends again. So I think uh, that's been an important aspect in terms of the biggest lesson for me that it's people-centric, it's human-centered. Uh, and for me, that's how I would actually recommend people make choices because ultimately you have to enjoy working with the people that you're with. Uh, and that's very, very important. Mm. Again, from a from a professional you know, uh, or career point of view, uh, can you think back about uh, probably the most memorable uh, mistake or low point and what that taught you. Maybe we can contrast that next with uh, uh, a high point. Ah, interesting question. Um, so maybe this, there's a fatal flaw in me. I'm just going to be candid about this. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I realized very early in life that very high points are usually followed by very low points and, and and I'm not saying there's a high and then something goes wrong I, I've just felt extraordinary fatigue at a very very personal level as the adrenaline I guess withdraws from the system after the high 
Uh, and so I've realized that these highs and lows are very momentary as a consequence. So I'm a very intense, passionate kind of person and I like to go after things that I can get excited about, etc. But uh, I'm very calm about these highs and lows. Uh, so I kind of look at all of these circumstances as fundamental influences in life. So for me, the question is, who are the people I, I don't like, for example, put anybody up on a pedestal saying, wow, I think it's about influences. I've been as influenced by some of the customers of our portfolio companies to maybe some wonderful, extraordinary uh, people who've changed the world. So, but their influences and even these moments of highs and lows are also very much. So what are like highs in my life, right? Um, I mean, in my law school days, I represent the country twice in certain law competitions. Certainly very highs. Followed both times by incredible lows. That's when I discovered this, this dimension of the lows, right? Working with some of these companies which have achieved real scale and you start to see them actually achieve the potential, extremely highs. But then there are companies which really start to face certain crises and then you feel the lows associated with this. Uh, so I, I, I see them as a continuum. I don't see them as, but each one of them teaches. And I think that's very, very important. So actually, it's very tough to single out because so much has been taught. But many of the frameworks that we've talked about from a professional context come out of lows because lows teach you how to think about things. Uh, but at the same time, you have to celebrate your highs. Personally, I'm much more even killed in the way I think about the world. Fair enough. I mean, pain is the biggest teacher. Uh, so, okay, let's let's uh, end with uh, a simple sort of standard question. Uh, what advice uh, would you have? Uh, and be as specific as you want uh, uh, for uh, you know someone aspiring to uh, do what you're doing, uh, or even an entrepreneur who wants to get into the sort of uh, social impact, bottom line based uh, for profit business. Sure. So. Um I think one of the biggest things when I, I talk to a lot of people about entering the space, whether relevant portfolio or even otherwise, I mean, probably like two to three conversations a week because a lot of people reach out to me for this. And this is what I tell people. This needs to be about hard work. This is not about finding balance in life because the problem statement by entering the space is so huge that you've got to be obsessed with solving for the end customer. It needs to occupy your mind space. So don't become a player in the impact space or an impact investor, unless that's going to be obsessive for you. Uh, that's very, very important. I meet too many people who are at a stage in life who are saying, I now want to focus on doing something meaningful. And I never understand what is now want to focus because it sounds like a journey into doing something simpler. You're actually making a journey into doing something much harder. Uh, so I think that would be my advice to people is just pause, understand your motivations and if your motivations are about obsession for the end customer, then jump right in because it's an incredible journey. Very nice. Uh, wonderful conversation. Truly insightful and really enjoyed it, uh, Sandeep. Thank you so much for making time for this. And definitely hope to keep the conversation going. No, thank you, Hari. And thank you for the opportunity. I, I love the questions and I hope I was able to give some kind of flavor. Uh, but just enjoyed this conversation myself. So thank you very much. That's it for this week's Startup Fridays. I'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, wherever you've been listening to us, I hope you're staying safe and doing well. Have a great Friday and a wonderful weekend ahead.